Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Bjork. Prince. Oprah. They all go by just one name. Why? They're legends. This week on Bullseye, we welcome another single-named icon, Steve-O. For over 20 years, Steve-O has performed on Jackass in all its iterations. The original TV show, the movies, the spin-offs. He's risked life and limb. He has suffered countless very serious injuries. And in doing all of those things, he has made millions laugh and gasp and cringe. Maybe we use the wrong instruments. So you think uh, music calmed the wild beast? Not at all. (laughs) Let me put it this way. Steve-O is America's only entertainer who could pull off a full back tattoo of Steve-O giving a thumbs up. In all seriousness, though, it's not easy being Steve-O. It never really has been. Steve-O, who was born Stephen Glover, has dealt with addiction nearly his entire life. This past January, he marked his 14th year clean and sober. He's been arrested, he's been jailed, and he suffers from the kind of medical issues you'd expect to see from a person who's injured themselves for the entertainment of others for two decades. He's doing a lot better these days. Like I said, he's sober, he lives in L.A., he's got a bunch of dogs, two goats, The latest Jackass movie, Jackass Forever, is not only hilarious, it was a huge success. You'll hear a clip from that later. And Steve-O has a brand new book. It's called A Hard Kick in the Nuts, What I've Learned from a Lifetime of Terrible Decisions. It just came out last month. In it, Steve-O talks a lot about addiction and recovery, how he came out the other side, and the lessons he learned. Before we get into my interview with Steve-O, a warning— There will be some coarse language. We will also be talking about bodily harm because, frankly, it is impossible to tell the story of Steve-O without talking about bodily harm. So we thought we'd let you know about both of those things. Anyway, let's get into it. My conversation with Steve-O. Steve-O, welcome to Bullseye. It's so nice to have you on the show. It's nice to have you here. Yeah, dude. Well, thank you for the invite. Am I correct? We're on NPR? National Public Radio, the one and only. How about that, man? I I just had an NPR interview um, on like the super, it just felt super legit and grown up and sophisticated (laughs) and mature and and highbrow. And it was just unfortunate that I had just woken up and I just don't think that. (laughs) I I thought you were about to say, (laughs) whereas this one. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I just, I don't know, and I, I, I got feedback from it. Like, oh, I heard you on NPR today. You know, it wasn't negative feedback, but I felt as though I didn't deliver a great interview. And and I'm happy to report that right now I feel rested. I feel sharp. I feel, you know, awake. What do you, what constitutes great public radio interview. I mean, what are we shooting for here? I mean, I don't know. But uh, but I also understand that this, being NPR, it, it means it's inherently highbrow and, and mature and sophisticated, but it's also very much targeted to a comedy audience and wildly popular at that. Thank you, Steve. That's that, very kind of you to say. That is what was reported to me. I'm glad someone told you that. And I, I believe them to be correct. Sure. Yeah. My publicist uh, raved about it. Um, Steve, as long as we're being 
classy and targeting a comedy audience. Maybe we should talk about Clown College, which you sure. went to. Happy to. I guess the first question is, like, why did you want to go to Clown College enough to figure out how to go to Clown College? I never even thought about being a clown or even in the circus until um, like very shortly before I auditioned for Clown College. Um, never even knew there was a Clown College. My story was that I was heavily into skateboarding you know when I was when I was young. Uh, my dad won a video camera in a golf tournament when I was 15. Um, I, I stole it from his closet uh, and just started filming skateboarding and editing skateboard videos with two VCRs connected to each other. And um, I, I fell in love with um, the video camera at that point because I was able to manipulate my... Uh, appearance you know like manipulate people's impressions of me really largely because skateboarding is so much uh just fails and fails and well there's outside of our our office has a big picture window that overlooks yeah. macarthur park near downtown la and there are a couple of big handrails in the park down big sets of stairs and often there are you know groups of four 17 year olds with cameras and skateboards. And the thing that always strikes me about it is, you know, they just go and go and right. go because skateboard tricks are hard. Right. And editing means that you can use the one that works. Exactly. So they just, they're just going and getting hurt over and over and right. over trying to nail something. And it's kind of like, it's kind of, Beautiful. It's super beautiful. And I mean, I, I maintain that um, the skateboarding taught me everything of supreme value in life, really. Like people will say, I learned everything I needed to know in kindergarten. And I really think I learned it from skateboarding because it is so uh, demanding. It's so difficult. It's so dangerous. You know, you cannot become proficient on any level at skateboarding without falling down and, and grievously hurting yourself um and it's just so frustrating and difficult and once the you know once you've become proficient you've you've made it through all of these challenges it, it whittles down you know like i started skateboarding in 1985 when back to the future came out it became this big boom in skateboarding. There was a skateboard underneath every kid's Christmas tree, you know, that, that year. And in short order, like 90% of the kids realized how difficult it was. And, and, uh, they fell down, they got hurt. They didn't, that, you know, this isn't for me. Like the 10% that kept doing it, if it was that, you know, like the, it's just this, it isolates this just group of just persistent bastards you know like um it, it's really the only activity that lends itself to um videotaping yourself doing it like the um and early early on it was like that um you know every kid that that's really trying hard at skateboarding wants to be sponsored and so the way to get sponsored is to make what's called a sponsor me video and you document that's what you said the kids show up and they're videotaping themselves like like no other activity uh really lends itself to that uh, the way skateboarding does you know if you want to become a, a tennis player win win games win matches you know like but skateboarders got such a head start on video production and that was what i first said was that skateboarding led me to the video camera and i fell in love with the video camera now the first uh actual uh I'll say practical, like life goal that I had for myself. 
um, was to become a creative advertising consultant. I thought, yeah, I love making videos. I'm not that good at skateboarding, but I just love the way that you can edit and manipulate. And, and I think I could be, I could be good at making TV commercials. So that was what I went to the university of Miami for to study in the school of communications with an advertising major. And I found that I was just not able to go to class. Just couldn't do it. You know, I couldn't do it and I couldn't keep a job. I'd been fired from every job that I ever had. But I, I was kicked out of the dorms. You know, I, I was on my way out of the University of Miami having failed really badly. And, and, and um, you know, people were asking me, well, what are you going to do now? You know, like, well, what's your plan? You're kicked out of the dorms, can't stay here. And I said, I'm going to become a crazy famous stuntman with the video camera. And, and and everyone just felt terribly sorry for me. Just what a tragic loser I seemed to be with this, this failing plan. And I left the University of Miami. I did have a video camera for for a while there before it melted in a hot car. And um, you know, I, I managed to get my hands on video cameras, like and get things done all the time. But I was very much homeless for three years after I left the University of Miami, um, couch surfing. And um, at the end of uh, you know th th three years of being homeless, I kind of threw my arms up in the air. I was just really, really hurting, and and um, it just I reached out to my sister and said, you know, hey, like uh, I you know I, I don't know what to do. And she said, well, come live with me in Albuquerque, New Mexico. She had just moved out there um, and become a journalist. She's kind of lonely, and and. Uh, you know, I moved out to live with my sister. It was a nightmare for her because she uh, didn't make that much money. She lived in a, a, a modest home. I, I was a slob. I ate her food. I was, you know. Were you drinking and using yeah. at the time too? So I, 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 I was. I was mostly a pothead and drunk all the time. But yeah, I was, I was a disaster. And she was at work one day re reading a book of trivia and she came upon a question that it asked, what is the only college that has no tuition? And she was interested and she flipped the answer and it said, Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Billy Clown College. If you can get in, it's totally free. And she immediately thought of me. I like to think that uh, she thought of me because like this seemed like an, a possible way of get me, getting me out of her house. And uh, I came home... Um, Th that night, and there was uh, a little note on the table, which I kept to this day. It said, uh, Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Clown College, apparently tuition's free if you can get in. And there was a phone number. And I called the number, and yeah, that was how I found out about it. The uh, I, What turned me on about it was that I wasn't really getting any traction in having a career. I By that point, I I was like doing simultaneous fire-breathing acrobatics. I could do like a perfect standing backflip like on flat ground, like while on fire and breathe a fireball as I flipped. All this crazy stuff like that. I was, I was doing handstands on moving cars. Like, What's uh, this? Now, hold on, because... Like, so I have a buddy who is like a variety performer, right? Like he goes and does the Edinburgh Fringe and then he goes and does... And he does like tricks. Like uh -huh. not like magic tricks, but Skills. like yeah, he, he juggles. His big move is he pulls the uh, tablecloth, the tablecloth, and then he puts it back on. That's wow. his big move. And what do you mean by put it back on? I mean he puts it back on, like underneath. You know the table is all set. Yeah, he pulls it out and then he pulls it in. He reverses it, like underneath all wow. this stuff. I, I might need to see a video of that. It's very cool. I mean, it's amazing. He's He's, uh -huh. you know, took a lot of work, right? And he made this video about learning to do that. And essentially what happened is, it, like, his parents wanted him to go to college. So he he pretty much told his parents he was going to college, but actually he was going to a park for a year uh, all day long, just practicing skills. Uh -huh. And so they're, like, for you, <laughs> like, you're describing this dissolute lifestyle, couch surfing, and yeah. whatever but like at some point fire breathing is not like getting kicked in the jewels like right getting kicked in the jewels takes on camera takes the guts to get kicked in the jewels uh -huh. 
and some charisma to do it successfully. <laughs> but like fire breathing involves skill. I don't and know. You don't just fire breathe, right? Well, yeah. I mean, the fire breathing, I learned it in a super unconventional way. Like, <laughs> you did. It's not the same old fire breathing well, learning right. I, I, I was taught the wrong way. I was taught the wrong way. I was um, a buddy of mine at the University of Miami um, would do it with uh, isopropyl rubbing alcohol, which I think is really bad to put in your mouth. Like, And I did it for years. Um, and the first time that I ever, uh, performed in front of hundreds of people, it was, um, I want to say it was Stewart, Florida, 1996. And, uh, I'd heard on the radio that they were having a, it was called a freak of nature contest or a talent contest. And I called up and I said, I want to be in the talent contest. And they said, what's your act? I told them I'm Steve-O, the alcoholic gymnast. And and it's and I explained that I would I would shotgun enough beers on stage like back to back to be undeniably drunk, visibly drunk. Then I would perform acrobatics while drunk, and um, and I just threw fire breathing into the mix. <laughs> um, so so uh, and, and and they had a number of acts. There was a good number of acts. It was like probably a two hour show, seven hundred people in the theater, and um, they, you know they're like. There'd be an act. I'd come out and shotgun two beers. Yeah, you, know, you could hear it crack open. You could hear that it was empty when I threw it on the stage. It was that was one thing I was really good at was shotgunning beers. I would do two, another act or two, and then I would come back out. Yeah, you know, by the end of it, I think I'd shotgunned like I don't know nine or ten beers, and um, did my thing. I get to the the oh, and, and by the way, the the crowd, the more, they kind of got more into it. The more I would drink, it's like oh, he's gonna do more. So they would started kind of chanting Steve oh Steve oh and I had been conflicted before that about whether or not I wanted to have this goofy nickname Steve O or if I should if I'd be taken more seriously if I was Steve Glover yeah. and uh that I mean, question was answered. when you are practicing the art of shotgunning two beers <laughs> at a time 100 percent I I really wanted to be like uh serious and, and I wanted to figure it out. And um when I heard the crowd chant Steve oh, Steve oh, I was like, Oh dude, they would never chant Steve. So done. And that was when I committed to being Steve O permanently forever. Best decision I ever made. Um but uh when was I was got... this the what you know, like comics have to have two impressions and two characters to audition for SNL. When you went and auditioned for Clown College, were you like, "Well, I've got shotgunning, <laughs> I've got drunk acrobatics." I, I brought a, I brought a portfolio of um, of action shots um, printed out, and uh, as well as a video. Um, you know, I, I had always had my my materials well organized, but on the talent show when I when it came to the fire breathing, I clicked the lighter as my buddy had done, and. Uh, I spit it, but I blew out the lighter and my, uh, my, you know, I just blew out the lighter and it was just this anticlimactic. It didn't light like, oh, and I was like super, super bummed about that. Um, and then I tried it again and, uh, when I did it, it worked, but my hand stayed on fire because I'd spit alcohol all over my hand. So my hand was kind of burning and I didn't even realize it at first. And then I was like, oh, wow. So I shook out my hand. Now, the thing about the rubbing alcohol is that it really burns like rather thin. Like my hand wasn't like terribly injured for being on fire. And then I thought, oh, wow, I could solve my problem. You know, I don't want to hold a torch, and but I can't blow out. I can't risk blowing out the lighter. So I, I developed this approach where I would just start out by just pouring rubbing alcohol on my hand, fill up my mouth with it, and then I just light my hand on fire and use that as a torch. Oh no! And then shake out my hand after. And so once I figured that out, then I would I pour it on my hand, light my hand on fire, and then do the backflip and blow it off my hand that way. So that was the whole genesis of the fire breathing backflip. But yeah, when. Um, hitchhiked from Albuquerque to Denver to uh to audition for Clown College and um they they ha they held auditions in all 100 cities that the circus went to every year and um so there were like 
probably about 60 people at the audition I went to, save maybe half of that, like call it 30 people went on average maybe, times 100, that's 3,000 people, and only 33 got in. So much more to get into with Steve-O. When we come back from the break, we'll talk about performing as a cruise ship clown. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is Steve-O. He's one of the stars of the Jackass movies and television shows. He has a new book, his third. It's called A Hard Kick in the Nuts, What I've Learned from a Lifetime of Terrible Decisions. Let's get back into our conversation. I wonder if, you know, you in clown college developed particular bits of shtick or if you had to like like, do you have to take a Commedia dell'arte class? Like, well, for for starters, clown college was much less like college than it was boot camp. It was basically boot camp for circus clowns. It lasted for eight weeks, um, and, you know, in and out there in a short time. During those eight weeks, they broke the days down into uh, like hour long classes. Um, you know, you'd be starting, you'd be in like the gymnasium at like 8 a.m. to just do like a morning kind of workout. And then the classes that you would have throughout the day were, the, you know, an hour of dance, an hour of acrobatics, an hour of skills, you know, an hour of uh, improv, you know, um, like circus history, you know, like, and then in, like an hour where you put on makeup. You know, break an, an hour for lunch and then come back and, you know, whatever else. And then you would have uh, from like 6 to 10 p.m. was like you can just you can focus on whatever you want to to prepare for the show that you're going to put up that week. You know, every every Saturday uh, there, there was a show and it was free for the public. The public started. We'd have experience um, performing. Well, in the first week, after training 14 hours, effectively, 8 in the morning to 10 p.m. is 14 hours. And once we were done at 10 p.m., then I would start drinking. <laughs> you know, I would drink until pro- probably at least 2 in the morning, you know, or whatever. It was like I would be underslept and, and hungover and... um and I would be like with my video camera doing all my crazy stuff. So I, in the first week, I was skateboarding in, in our apartment complex, drunk, late at night. And, and I split my head open. Like, like you know, uh, it was like bleeding everywhere. Big gash because I hit my head on this, this thing while jumping down a flight of stairs. And um, they say, oh, you got to go to the hospital. You know, you definitely need to go to the hospital. I said, and I'm thinking, I don't want to go to the hospital at one in the morning. Like, that's going to make me look terrible at Clown College. We're all here competing. Only 10 of us are going to get contracts. You know, you don't want to look bad. You don't want and, and, and they, they really insisted, no, we got to take you to the hospital. I said, all right, well, I'm not going anywhere until I get a rad picture of me with all this blood pouring out and... <laughs> I got the rad picture, and it's actually on a, a rad T-shirt. I was I, I curse myself for not having one handy, but I have them in my car. Um, they take me to the hospital, and I remember too. I went into the. I, I needed to get five staples in in my head, and um, there was somebody somebody from Clown College waiting. It's like one in the morning. This is just awful. So the the doctor says I need to put in five uh, staples. I'm talking about whatever. I need to staple your head shut. And so here I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to give you a shot to to numb it up. And I said, dude, I don't have time for that, dude. There's like important someone important is in the waiting room. I cannot keep them waiting. F- the anesthesia. Just just pump in the staples. And so the, so, so he, he thought I was kind of nuts, but he pumped in the staples with no anesthesia, which I was super proud of. And then. Um, he said, okay, like these have to come out in, I think he said two weeks. It has to come out in two weeks. If you leave them in after two weeks, then it'll uh, heal, he- over it'll heal over it. It can get infected. It's all kinds of bad news. And it would be physically impossible for you to take out the staples. So uh, you have to come back. 
And I'm like, okay, this guy just challenged me. Can't physically impossible. So after two weeks, I'm trying to take out the the stables and I just can't figure it out. And I got the other clowns and some of some of the other clowns are trying to help me figure it out. Night after night, we just can't figure it out. Until we got wire clippers. Like I just had to have wire clippers. We had to cut the staples in half in the middle and take out the two pieces separately. And then I know so we got them out. But um the 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 So it's so it's a it, it yeah. has a happy ending. This yeah. Story. <laughs> and the thing was that the general consensus among everybody at the clown college was sort of like, this guy doesn't want to be a clown. What the f- is he doing here? And it was, it was true. Like the, the reason I wanted to go to clown college was to further my goal of becoming a crazy famous stuntman. I thought if I graduate from clown college, then I will be a trained circus professional. And as such, people will take me seriously when I'm lighting myself on fire at backyard keg parties. <laughs> Well, I mean, <laughs> I've seen video of you in full clown makeup and clown costume, and the video I saw, you were balancing a skateboard on your hand, um, presumably about to do some kind of skateboard clown thing, uh, yeah, which is I, not I, a category, unlike rodeo clown, not a category of employment. <laughs> I, I did um, end up working in, in a circus for, for six months, and on days when I felt up up to it. I would do a a skateboard routine. So here's my question. You got fired out of clowning. You got fired from a job um, on a clowning on a cruise ship. Yep. And you kind of, as I understand it, went straight into the jackass world from there. Yeah. I was working on, um, I was working on cruise ships as, as a clown. I did not get, I was not one of the 10 clowns that got the contract for the, the circus. Then, um, and, and it was sad for me because even though I didn't necessarily want to be a clown and, and I was going there like to legitimize my, you know, crazy stunts. Um, and I made a terrible first impression at clown college, but the reality was by the end of those eight weeks, by the time I graduated from Clown College, I had really fallen in love with the, the idea of it, you know, and I was like pretty heartbroken that I didn't get a contract. And um, about a year later, I'm in Florida and these clowns who left the circus because the, the circus job that we were competing for in Clown College paid $235 a week and you lived on a train for 50 out of 52 weeks a year. It was a rough job. And um, the clowns were like, man, we're better than this. We can, you know, there was like a, a small group of clowns that were better than this, we're talented, we want a better gig. And they figured out how to bring clowning to cruise ships. Six months of training was the contract and we were just preparing for the program to launch. And I was teamed up with these other clowns who I didn't particularly think were talented or funny and they did they certainly didn't have rad skills and and the the stuff they were trying to do i they just didn't, failed your radness test <laughs> yeah, i didn't get you have it. high radness standards yeah I, I i didn't get it and so i wasn't particularly like uh collaborative with them you know i kind of wanted to do my own thing i had my own skill set and <clears throat> i was disrespectful of them and they decided that uh, that they didn't want to work with me after this contract, and, and they got me fired. They said to the cruise ship brass, "If Steve-O comes back for another contract, we all quit, like all three of them." And uh, it, uh, that that was um, it's understandable because I was legitimately disrespectful of them. But my boss clown in the troop above me, he, this guy's awesome. His name's Edge. Edge Shimovsky, a Polish guy, super rad, unbelievably talented. I just looked up to him so much, and he called a meeting with me. And he said, hey, dude, these clowns that you're working with have, they've, they've uh, like pulled a mutiny, you know, like they've gone behind your back, and I'm telling you that you are not, you're not getting a contract renewed. Our and next port is Bora Bora. You'd better get off now. It wasn't that. I was, was going to finish out my contract. I had another two months on my contract to finish it out, but they were just going to have me not know and just find out that he says, I'm not going to let them do you like that. But 
the boss clown told me, if anybody finds out I told you this, then I'm going to lose my job. So you cannot let on that you know. But I just feel strongly that you have, you know, I'm telling you, call up your skateboard buddies. Call up your skateboard buddies and try to drum something up because this job is not, you're not coming back for another contract. But but sure enough, I I I like like the boss said, Edge said, reach out to your skateboard buddies. And I read the person I reached out to was Jeff Tremaine. Who, and he's uh, the director of He is the director of Jackass. I had been on one cover uh, on on the cover of his mag he was the editor in chief of Big Brother Skateboarding magazine. And I called him up, I said, hey, I think I've got another cover. I said, so here's the idea. I get a like I'm ten feet tall on stilts. I got a stilt costume. I'm gonna the whole still costume in flames on fire while I'm burning on like a, the still costumes on fire. I got a unicyclist rides a unicycle through my flaming stilts at the exact same time. A skateboarder jumps off the roof of a house over my head and through a fireball. I'm blowing out of my mouth and then when the skateboarder like lands on a ramp and rides away in the unit, when those, when those two guys ride away, then I crack open a beer and pound it. And, and while I'm pounding, <clears throat> while I'm pounding the beer, I tip myself over and slam onto the concrete. And then I need someone to put me out. And, and Jeff Tremaine says, I like it. <laughs> and and it, the year at that point was 1999. And I was like, this is my, I came off the cruise ship the, uh, in November. And and I I I got three still costumes made up, you know, custom made by like a, a seamstress seamstress person. Like I I bought the I bought the stilts, the, the you know, I'm juggling towards everything that I could possibly you know get to to help me with this. And I flew myself out to California, and and, and dude, this was like pretty early internet, you know, like I like I found someone on like AOL chat rooms, you know. To, to be the unicyclist. And uh, I forget how the unicyclist got there, but I brought my pro skateboard, but I put it all together. Flew myself out there, put it all together. Tremaine came down on December 30th, 1999 with Johnny Knoxville, he says, yeah, with the photographer, the whole, the whole little team. And Tremaine said, okay, man, now that, now that you're here, I, I, you know, now you've come all this way, so now I'm going to tell you that we're not doing this really for Big Brother. We're doing it for for MTV, for this uh, this pilot. I want to play a little bit from Jackass Forever, the most recent Jackass movie. Cool. With my guest Steve-O and Machine Gun Kelly, the singer and some sometime singer, sometime rapper, sometime whatever it is. And um, it's a thing called Bicycle Backhand. You and Machine Gun Kelly are on stationary bikes. You're sort Exercise of- Exercise bikes, yeah. Yeah, yeah above, ab- above and next to a pool. Yep. And there's two enormous, like five foot tall, seven foot long, white gloved Mickey Not Mouse white hands. Gloved. It, was, no. it was flesh tone, but yeah, but a yeah. styrofoam hands. Yeah. Gargantuan hands on gargantuan sort of uh swing arms. It, it was it was rigged up by a stunt person, but yeah, the idea was that the 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 hands were built onto a mechanism that would coil back to a certain point. And what determined it being uh, coiled back was the, the exercise bike. The faster you pedaled, the, the, the more that the, the hand would be you know, coiled back on the spring mechanism. And then when it got to a certain point, the spring would be released and boom, the hand would... We, we weren't allowed to call it the slap. <laughs> But yeah, the hand, it was called the backhand or I don't know. You can't call it that on national public radio now, Steve. <laughs> so the first thing we're going to hear is, is Steve-O talking some mess. And then at the end, there is a, there is a misfire from one of those hands. You might be younger, taller, better looking, richer, more talented, but I could ride. Yeah. <laughs> Steve-O's just eat up with envy. <laughs> Go ahead, it won't do much. Charlie, can you push that hand in a little closer? Okay. I'm going to push this forward a little. No one was even. It's fun hearing that. Like, uh, 
What, what we do is fun, man. Well, that's okay. So that's what I want to ask you about because I hadn't really watched Jackass until my 11-year-old got obsessed with it. Um, probably not appropriate for 11-year-olds, but the train left the station and there wasn't anything we could do about it. Right. Besides participate and be guiding lights. And um, so I ended up watching all the movies and, and a lot of episodes of the TV show with her. And in the early stuff, once in a while, there's something that's a little distasteful to me. And obviously, like, it's a lot of white dudes. Like, there's... So, but in general... Generally speaking, one of the things that I was struck by is just how sweet it is. I describe it as wholesome. Like I am, <laughs> I am bothered by people getting hurt and sure. uh, bodily functions. So it's very upsetting to me to watch it in some ways. Sure, uh, it's wonderful stuff. Like it's really great. But well, thank um, you. But like the thing that was most impressive to me about it is all of these horrible, horrible things happening on screen. And they all seem to be expressions of love and fond regard. <laughs> like, Yes. I, I think that to the extent that the, the things happening on screen lean towards just self-harm self-destructive like behavior like uh you know injuries and and uh you know, awful things happening um the fact is that it it all just brings us joy you know like we're rabid attention whores begging for the screen time in the spotlight we, we so want all of this stuff to happen to us and to each other. And it brings us so much joy, like wh when it happens, that it's permissible to enjoy it. You know, like we're, we're not, like we're all willing participants. We're actually begging for it. So there's nothing, there's nothing mean spirited about what's actually happening. And that we don't target anybody except ourselves and each other. So it's just, I really feel strongly that it's just devoid of anything mean-spirited. There's nothing hateful. There's nothing nasty or cruel. It, it's just a bunch of guys just absolutely just tickling, just we're tickled with it, like the, the way, you know, and then the measure for success of a bit when we film it is is uh, the, what we call the peanut gallery. You know, you've got you've got a guy, two guys, however many guys are actually actively participating in the bit, but then basically without fail, you've got onlookers. You know, a, a strategically set up group of supporting cast members who are simply there as a peanut gallery just looking on and if the peanut gallery is laughing then we know it's working one of the great skills of jackass it is obvious that uh, there is a great gift among the cast and producers of the show for thinking of something novel like <clears throat> coming up with something like that, like part of the joy yeah. in, of watching Jackass four, which came after a long run of television programs is that you have new ideas, right? I wonder. Um, and it's not they, just they, that they're, they're, they're worse. They're, it's how new they are. Like it's how like there, there was, there was some new stuff, but, but yeah, there, there's definitely, um, there's definitely a lot going on and it has to feel fresh. Like you have to figure out so many new ways to injure your genitals. <laughs> There's one yeah. with, with honey and a group of bumblebees. I don't even think we had honey. Like uh, with bees, all you have to have is the queen bee. <laughs> we, uh, we strapped the queen bee underneath my... <laughs> we'll finish up with Steve-O in just a minute. After the break, we'll talk about whether or not going sober has affected the work he does on screen with Jackass. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. 
Her Majesty served Great Britain and the Commonwealth loyally for over 70 years. And while, of course, we feel a profound sadness, we must remember she lived a long life and died in such a way that I think many of us would want for ourselves. She was at home, surrounded by her family. And, of course, she was listening to the Beef and Dairy Network podcast. The Beef and Dairy Network podcast is a multi-award-winning comedy podcast, and you can find it at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, I am talking with Steve-O, the star of Jackass. He has a new book. It's called A Hard Kick in the Nuts, What I've Learned from a Lifetime of Terrible Decisions. It's part advice book, part memoir. It is harrowing and hilarious, very on brand for Steve-O. Let's get back into our conversation. I don't want you to think this is an insincere question, because it is not. Um, I for public radio purposes, we'll say caught it in the jewels in first grade playing <laughs> softball after school. Uh, it's burned into my memory forever. It has not happened since, and I'm so grateful for that. <laughs> um, you've caught it in the jewels on camera many times. Yep. Um, and probably, you know, a lot of skateboard guys have had that happen to them riding rails, I think. Um, yeah. That kind of thing. And I wonder if it, if the experience changes, trying to keep this relatively radio friendly, if the experience changes further on down the line, um, does it hurt less later? It's it's pretty awful no matter what. It's, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I remember catching a volleyball to the jewels in high school and that's burned into my memory as just being so, so terrible. And it's basically the same thing uh, at this age. Um, the uh, the question of of uh, tolerating pain at that level. The question that people ask me so often: you know, Do you have a high threshold for pain? I don't think I do particularly. I I, I just have such um, an overdeveloped need for attention that my desire for attention outweighs my desire for comfort. Do you think that's pathological? Do you think you're a narcissist? Um, for sure, I would, I would guess, yeah. I don't, I don't even think I have to guess. I think that that would make perfect sense, yeah. I mean, one of the things that your book is about is you over time, like as you enter middle age, having to build the muscle of having productive relationships. For sure. For sure. Now, I wonder, like, the, on the question of narcissism, um, I, I know that narcissist, the, the term comes from the guy looking at his reflection in the narcissist, water. Narcissist, yeah, narcissist, right? Yeah, Um and so he's just obsessed with the image of himself. That's me through and through. But I think that that there are like a really negative connotations to the term narcissist, which extend beyond simply being obsessed with one's own image. And I think that the connotations uh, imply not caring about others. You know, maybe I think, and and I don't know that. I think that that might be a departure for me because I I very much care about others and um you know like when I when I'm obsessed about my own image it's like in crafting my own image to to be uh, impactful to be you know entertaining enjoyable for others so I don't know if that breaks the mold of of what the definition of narcissism is. Um, Maybe not. Maybe I'm just trying to wiggle out of something negative. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. But I look at what I do as, as something that I consider very noble, you know, because it's safe to say 
probably most people have great stress in their life. You know, probably most people um, don't love what they do for a living. Um, you know, a lot of people have health issues that are very stressful, unhappy marriages, you name it. There's all kinds of stressors. And I'll never uh, purport to, you know, doing, being able to fix any of these problems. But if I can create art, which is compelling, you know, shocking, entertaining enough to distract one's thoughts from their stressors, I may not have fixed their problems, but I have made their problems go away. And so, you know, by that measure, the, the term that I have coined, the title that I have given myself in my career is um, distraction therapist. I am a professional distraction therapist. You got clean and sober. You've been clean and sober for a long time. Do you think that changed what you wanted to get out of your performances? Or do you think it's the same thing in a different way or, or what? Um, <clears throat> I think that the biggest change is before I got clean and sober in 2008, I expected that my life would end much sooner rather than later. I never, growing up, I never imagined making it to 30 years old. And, you know, even when uh, I was dropping out of the University of Miami and I'm going to be a crazy famous stuntman, I don't know that I believed that I would accomplish uh, my goals in my lifetime. I felt pretty convinced that what I was doing with the home video camera was an exercise in trying to pack my message into a bottle because I expected that I would die having largely failed at life young and, and you know, tragically young and that maybe the, that uh, what I was documenting with the video camera might outlive me. You know, this was like, this was so important to me. The idea that I might die, but what I'm documenting is forever. And, uh, and that went on. The only thing that mattered, like I didn't care about money. Like I wasn't saving for anything because I didn't expect to be alive. Like all I cared about was attention. And what changed about that, I'm still every bit the attention whore that I ever was. But when I got sober in 2008, all of a sudden, it was like a perfect storm of terror. I had burned all the bridges in my career. You know, there's any opportunities that I had professionally, I had ruined. So when I, when I went into rehab in 2008, there was no live professional, you know, opportunities. Um, also in this world of recovery that I was being introduced to in rehab, they talked a lot about deflating the ego, you know, like developing humility, like practicing uh, spirituality in all of your affairs. And, and that just, I couldn't understand how that jived with being Steve-O of Jackass. I just thought, oh my God, like, can I even continue to pursue a career in entertainment and meet these requirements of being in recovery? Like it's, it just seems so, so I didn't even know if I had a career anymore. Like I didn't know, if, and it, it was so scary because now I was taking care of myself for the first time. Now I'm clean and sober. I'm watching what I'm eating and I'm like, Maybe I'm not going to die young. Maybe I'm actually going to live for many more decades. Maybe I'm not even halfway through my life. Maybe, you know, maybe I've got another 50 years and I don't know how I'm going to eat. And on top of that, it was 2008 and the financial crisis came and wiped out more than half of what I did manage to save. Um, 
And and what's crazy is I look back on it now and, and logic tells me how terrorizing all of that was. But I don't remember being particularly terrorized at the time because I was just kind of focused on getting through each day, just like they say, one day at a time. But looking back on it now, I think, man, that was a scary, perfect storm. And um, clearly it became more important to me to be savvy as a businessman to try to put together like uh, a, a viable career to sustain myself for what might be a long life. And that's been the biggest change. So I'm less concerned now about what people's opinion is of me after I've passed, you know, like that just seems a little bit silly. Now I'm more interested in uh you know, this this whole idea of um, of having an animal sanctuary is my new big goal with my fiance. You know, we want to buy this big property and have an animal sanctuary. And, and uh, you know, I love that to be a legacy because that might actually do something instead of like people remembering me. Like, what does that do? You know, so having lasting change that actually serves some kind of benefit, I think is a more worthy goal. Well, Steve, I've taken so much of your time. I'm thank you so much for coming on the show. It was really nice to get to talk to you. Well, thanks, man. I uh, I have this thing where I never shut up and I talk the whole time. But hopefully, we uh, we we made a pretty good show. Well, good. The good news is, Steve, I was interviewing you, so <laughs> that's sort of how it goes. Like, that's <laughs> what it is. So right. Well, thank well, thank you, man. It's 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 been a joy. Steve, his book is out now. It's called A Hard Kick in the Nuts. What I've Learned from a Lifetime of Terrible Decisions. Go get it wherever you buy books. The latest Jackass movie is called Jackass Forever. You can rent or buy it pretty much anywhere, or you can stream it on Paramount+. Plus. I will tell you that I have watched it, and it is monumentally funny. Steve-O is also crisscrossing the country, promoting the book, and doing his live stage extravaganza, <laughs> which features him swinging from a rope ladder dangling from a helicopter, and uh, various other videos of him doing terrible things and then telling funny stories about them. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. As we were preparing this week's episode, the Dodgers were playing the Padres in the playoffs and a goose interrupted the game. He wouldn't leave. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Kevin's a Dodgers fan. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. I don't know if they like baseball. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Tabitha Myers. She's probably a Phillies fan. We get booking help from Mara Davis. She might be rooting for the Braves. Our interstitial music is by DJ W, also known as Dan Wally. He's definitely a Red Sox fan if you like sports. Special thanks this week to Caleb Huntley and Crystal Smith of Castle Rose Studios in Oklahoma City for recording Mike and Bone for us. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team and to their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find us on each of those platforms. Follow us. We will share with you all of your interviews. We hope that you will take this opportunity to share an interview from this week's program with someone that you love. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR. 